The reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, and it'll be on the screen, but you can also find it on the Church Bibles on page 1174. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of God. How's everybody's weekend been? Top. One response. I've got two more questions, and I'll need responses from it, and then I'll do the rest of the talking, and you can just sit in silence. Um, So can anyone remember what the celebration we had as a nation uh, last weekend? No, not this weekend, last weekend. The coronation, yes? And can anyone tell me who the king was crowned king of? King Charles III. III. King Charles III, king of? Great Britain, Britain, the United Kingdom, was the answer I was looking for there. Um, Sorry, I don't know my technical royal terms. Um, When I was uh, watching the coronation and preparing for this uh, talk, it made me think about the time I was most proud to be from the United Kingdom. And it made me think back to about 10 years ago, just over, when we had the Olympics here in London, 2012. Um, And dare I say, I was actually proud to be British rather than just an Englishman, waving my Union Jacks and celebrating all of our gold medals. But now I think we find ourselves a decade or so down the line, and I'm not sure about you, but I feel like we're more of an ununited kingdom than perhaps a united kingdom. Um, There's disillusion with politics, with the monarchy, 
There were protests um, at the coronation. Don't know if anyone saw them. We have a cost of living crisis, and that's just to touch the surface. We also struggle with racism in our society. Sexism is still prevalent. In the context of where we are in the book of Ephesians, the past three sermons can kind of be summed up as Paul talking about the new life which God has given us in Christ. And now we have Paul explaining to the church in Ephesus the new society that God has created through Christ. And in particular, in these verses, Paul is explaining the new humanity uh, that Christ has made, which we are all part of as Christians. In the context of 2,000 years ago, the prejudice that we see in our society were still at large uh, there in Ephesus. In fact, um, I was reading some of the commentaries and the social divisions that they suffered from as a society, potentially as a church, uh, were probably far worse than what we see around us as we're becoming more of a globalised community and trying to cross, cross cultural barriers. You had the Romans, who were the ruling empire, who viewed themselves as citizens of Rome, and it was them, and then everyone else below them. You had the Greeks still knocking around, who saw themselves as the true civilization, where Rome had come from. They were the top dogs, and everyone else was barbarians to them. And then you had the Jews, who rightly so viewed themselves as God's chosen people. But instead of embracing that and trying to bring other people into their society as they were called to constantly throughout the Old Testament, they used it as a way to separate themselves from the other nations, from the Gentiles, from people who weren't born into Israel and looked down on the non-Jews. There was lots of social division and it's no surprise that in this letter to Ephesians, Paul has to try and explain to the church um, where they all sit with one another and what this new united um, humankind uh, God has created in Jesus' Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, Peter, one of uh, Jesus' disciples himself, it wasn't until 10 years after Jesus' death and and resurrection, you can read it in Acts 10 and 11, uh, God had to send him a vision, the same vision three times before he realised that God was telling him that the teachings he'd heard, Jesus, the parables, um, the conversations he'd had with him, weren't just for him to share with other Jews, but for Gentiles, non-Jews, people like me and you. And Paul's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, probably about another 20 years later, trying to explain to them where a group of Romans, Greeks, Jews, slaves, free, men and women, all fit together. And the short answer to all of that is the gospel. And amidst all of this um, division and social anxiety, Jesus' death on the cross has allowed the church to rise up from it. And Paul kind of explains this in, in three ways. First of all, he first talks about who we were, who they were as Gentiles before Christ. Then he goes on to explain what Christ has done for us, how it's Christ who has allowed this to happen and nothing we have done and then finally he gives the beginnings of his vision of what he sees the church being and how he believes Christ wants us to be as a society together as Christians 
So starting in verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without gods in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." Paul's reminding the Gentiles, the non-Jews, of their old way without Christ. Now, for most of us in this room, I'll probably be right in saying that we too would fall in that category of being Gentiles. Now, there might be some of you here who have got Jewish ancestry or were practising Jews before converting to Christianity, but for the majority of us here, myself included, the truth that Paul is writing there, speaking there to the church in Ephesus is as true for us now as it was nearly 2,000 years ago. It's easy for us, especially us Christians who have been uh, walking with Christ for a while now, to remember what our lives were like, or perhaps painful to think about what our lives were like before Christ. Paul describes it quite simply in verse 12 as we were without. We were without God and without hope. At the time that Paul was writing this letter, um, in the first century, historians have noted that there was an air of hopelessness at the time. Now, these Gentiles, who Paul's talking to, they weren't without gods or their own religion. And um, Eleanor and Jamie have mentioned in previous weeks about uh, Artemis, I think it is, the goddess who had a temple in Ephesus, which was one of the great uh, ancient wonders of the world. They had their own gods and religion, but they were without the true God. And at the time, across the Roman Empire, there was starting to be a feeling that these gods weren't doing anything for them anymore. And historians also often note that in the first century, um, there was this air of despair and depression, sometimes referring referring to that period as the age of suicide. When I was reading this, looking at commentaries, looking at the historical, uh, what was going on in Ephesus at the time, it uh, struck me how many similarities I saw in the first century with the society we see around us in the 21st century. The Gentiles that Paul's talking to had friends, family, perhaps themselves, who've gone through the same stuff that we see in our society around us. How many of our friends or family, people at school, people at work, struggle in, the life, in their lives and try to fill uh, their hopelessness with gods and other, and other idols, but too find themselves struggling. I looked into it a bit more, and before COVID, it was reported that one in 10 adults in the UK suffered from depression or were uh, classed as depressed. After COVID, that had risen to one in five adults in the UK. And that these figures were before we had the cost of living crisis, before people are struggling to pay for their rent, provide heating in their homes, have enough food to eat. It can be easy, or perhaps um, we don't take for granted the hope that being Christians, that Jesus' death and resurrection has provided for us. Um, I might expose myself a bit here, and some people in the youth will already know this, but 
Ellie, my fiance, sitting down there, and me here, or oh, I see some worried faces, are vegans. Yeah? Um, and we made this choice as um, a way of reducing our environmental impacts and going to a plant-based diet we thought was the best way or one of the ways we could try and look after the environment. Um, I've got some friends, one of whom I used to live at university, a couple who are also uh, vegans, um, but they're a lot more active, or especially than me, in their pursuit of um, what they would call environmental justice and looking after the environment. They're involved in Greenpeace. They've been on marches and done a little bit of uh, protesting and political unrest. Um, and maybe a year, year and a half ago, I was having a conversation uh, with one of my mates, one of the, the couple, and talking about the point of no return. It had come up in um, the news that week. And we were discussing about whether we had gone past the point where we'd done so much damage to the environment that we're just going to have to live with global warming and the consequences, and is this the end of the earth, or is there a way of getting it back to what I believe would say is how God created it, or how they would see it as uh, Mother Nature uh, being able to flourish herself. And we're having this conversation, and I was saying, well, you know, I've made these changes. That about six months before, I'd been eating meat, and here I was now a vegan, and other people were recycling and, and all the, the, the new policies that were being spoken about. I think COP was going on at the time, and I was saying, like, surely there is hope. Surely we can, we can solve the crisis. And it really struck me when my two friends were saying, I don't know if there is any hope. Um, I don't know what's going on. Um, they're not Christians, and they just couldn't see uh, beyond the climate crisis. And we were having this conversation, and they came up with a figure and said, yeah, I don't think the world's going to be around in 2050. Merely more than 25 years. And it, re it really hit me. I was like, how hopeless do they feel? They're making all of these life choices to try and look after the environment, and yet they have no hope that it's going to last more than 25 years. As I was saying, it is easy to forget what our life was like before we were Christians, before we were filled with hope of more life to come, of being able to, some uh, God offering us improvements to our situations that we find ourselves in. Now, I'm not saying that just because we have Christ now, that we're not going to feel a little bit hopeless from time to time, or struggling, or feel rejected. In fact, recently I was applying um, for jobs, and I really just thought, I have to get out of my job. I applied for a few jobs here and there, was getting rejection after rejection, or worse than all, was applying to recruiters and not hearing anything back at all. And rejection never feels good, does it? However, I got one email back saying that they had, would offer me an interview. I had the interview, and off the back of that, I got uh, offered a new job. That one acceptance of one job offer made me forget all of the rejection, all of the hopelessness that I'd felt only a couple of weeks before. Some of us right now might feel hopeless or rejected, but I'd offer encouragement knowing that rejected on earth, simply put, is nothing towards our acceptance in heaven and of a greater hope to come. And we see this in verse 13. But now, Paul 
highlights how it was before and then says, but now in Christ Jesus, through him, you who are once far away, us Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's brought us close to him. We were outsiders and now we're insiders. Paul then goes on to talk more about what Christ has done for us in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Those far away being us the Gentiles and near being the Jews. And for him and through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now to understand how radical of a thing this was, what Paul's saying, we really have to get our head into 2,000 years ago the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. According to Paul... In one of his, in his uh, letters to the Romans, I believe it is, in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, he talks about how being a Jewish, born Jewish, does bring some benefits to understanding Christ and what he's done for us. He says, They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshipping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are their ancestors and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. The Israelites had been given a great opportunity as God's chosen people to use the laws and the privilege of worshipping God centuries, millenniums before the Gentiles as a way of showing the other nations how what God had to offer could bring you into a new life that was better than anything false gods or um, idols could provide. And they had been repeatedly called, as I said earlier, throughout the Old Testament to effectively evangelise to the other nations to show a way towards God. However, instead of using these opportunities uh, they'd been granted to bring others towards them and towards God, they instead used it to separate themselves from the Gentiles, from the other nations. They used the separation and this holiness they saw in themselves to look down on people like me and you, before we came to Christ. You see in verse 11 earlier, uh, they used derogatory terms like uncircumcised, which might sound a bit funny to us now, but in all seriousness then, that was a derogatory divisive term highlighting that the Jews were different, they were insiders, and the Gentiles were outsiders. And Paul, who writes this letter himself, had once taken pride in the fact that he'd been circumcised within eight days of being born. The divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles weren't just in um, how they spoke to one another, but it went further than that. It went into how they treated one another with their actions. Um, When I was looking into this, there was um, 
some of the historians noted and, and in commentaries how some Jews wouldn't allow themselves to help a pregnant woman who was a Gentile because they would view that as having helped bring into the world a non-Jew who was going to bring down the status of God or bring sin into the world. And Jewish parents had ceremonial funerals if one of their children was going to marry a non-Jew. On the day of the wedding, they would hold their own funeral, symbolising to their child that you're no longer part of the family, you're dead to us, you're dead to Israel, you've been cast out. They had the covenants, they were able to worship God, they had the Messiah, the promised saviour of the Jewish nation. In spiritual terms, they had everything, and us Gentiles had nothing. Yet instead of using that place of um, promise and privilege to bring others in, they pushed them away. So it can be hard to appreciate how radical what Paul was saying is. When he says he destroyed the barrier and it's dividing walls of hostilities, it's not like a small little fence. This was a, a massive Great Wall of China-sized wall that was being broken. And this was all changed in one event, Jesus' death on the cross. There was no longer Jews and Gentiles, but a new type of humanity that we might simply want to call saved And it's not like Jesus or God had failed at um, his his work with the Israelites and then therefore moved on to us Gentiles as, oh, we're second choice, now he couldn't save the Jews, now he's going to save us. But we were part of his plan all along. In John 10, when Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, um, in verse 16, he says, when he's talking to the Jewish people around him, I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them in also. Also, they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. There he's talking about the Gentiles. The separation in Judaism wasn't just between the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, And when God is spoken... Well, when Paul's speaking here about God creating a new humanity through Christ, it's a new humanity. It's not upgrading Judaism. In the temples, for temple worship, here I've got um, like an artistic rendering of what they think the temple looked like, and there were separate sections which each member of society could get into. So furthest away, you had the court of the Gentiles, and then there was a barrier that they weren't allowed to go past. And then you had a separate court for women and they could get a bit closer to the Holy of Holies where uh, God dwelled. And then beyond them, there was a section uh, for the court of Israel or the court of um, the lame men um, of Israel. And then beyond beyond them, you had the court of the priests and they could get a bit closer to the Holy of Holies. And then you had the Holy Holies of itself where only the high priest could enter once a year for a short amount of time. When Paul talks in his letter about creating um, a new man, one out of both Jews and Gentiles, he's, saying that, he's not saying that Jesus' death and resurrection has raised us up to the level of the Jews. 
In verse 15, what he's saying, his death has removed the laws and regulations set on the Jews. He created a new humanity. God isn't like Apple or, um, I can't remember the guy who created the iPhone. Steve Jobs, was it? Yep. Not like Steve Jobs. He didn't upgrade Judaisms from the iPhone 8 to the iPhone 10 or the 11 or 14. He didn't upgrade the model. He created something completely new. One man out of the two. And this humanity that Paul introduces is not a singular group that God has made a covenant with that we can try and get more and more people to assimilate alongside to. But it's a covenant that includes every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We were separated, and now we're integrated. When I was working through um, these four verses, I was really challenged myself, um, thinking about where I fit within, was I more like I was part of the Jewish group or part of the Gentiles? And I realised growing up in uh, a Christian society or a society that is affected by the Bible, the head of state being the head of the Church of England, I went to a Church of England primary school, that actually I was probably falling more into this, the, the way of life that the Jews had, separating myself as a Christian from people who weren't Christian. I've got some friends who I will happily go and speak to about my Christian faith, about gods, they're going through hard times, I'll drop in that I'll pray for them, or I'll give them advice and say, well, as a Christian, I believe that this might be the best thing to do, um, or, yeah, and point them, try and point them towards God and evangelise, right? But I also have friends where I keep back the part of me that's a Christian. Not necessarily in the way I act, but in conversations, when I want to give them advice or they're going through a hard time, I won't talk about Christ. I'll gatekeep Christ from them. A bit like the Jews keeping God away from the Gentiles. Who am I to choose who God speaks to? Why do I view my friendships or being rejected by friends as being more important than, albeit briefly, but maybe importantly, mentioning the good news and telling my friends about Jesus. Yes, I felt really challenged that I was part of the Jews in, before this new society that God has created. Paul then goes at the end to talk about what this looks like, what it means. If we look back at our past and appreciate what Jesus has done for us and none of it our own doing, what does this mean for us in this new society as a church? Consequently, or therefore, therefore, if we get the first bit right, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Um, Ellie and I are getting married in less than two months' time. 
really looking forward uh, to the wedding, the wedding day, the reception, the party, uh, being with friends and family. Uh, but equally, I'm looking forward to the honeymoon and going on holiday. And we're going to Bali, um, and just yesterday was Ellie's birthday, and I bought uh, her a lonely panic guide to Bali and Lombok. And we were discussing, or starting to discuss, what different tourist destinations we want to go to, how much do we want to feel like a stereotypical holiday maker there, or um, do we want to try to see some of the more relevant, not relevant, but more of the um, cultural aspects that perhaps um, people who are only there to party would, would miss out on. Um, and no matter how many small insights we might get into society in Indonesia or look at temples and, and see their way of life, um, ultimately, we are just going to be holiday makers. We're just going to be visitors uh, in Bali. But what Paul's saying here is we're no longer visitors to the, to the temple. We're no longer Gentiles stuck on the outside court. We are, yeah, we're not holiday makers in the kingdom of God. We're citizens, and with that comes, um, with that comes great opportunity, and it, and it's magnificent in itself. If Paul was to stop there, I couldn't complain about being a citizen in God's kingdom and being having the uh, having rights and. Um, certain uh, privileges that come with being a, a, a Christian and being able to worship God freely and being in communion with him and in conversation with him and praying with him and, um, yeah, being able to reach the Holy of Holies. Uh, but Paul doesn't stop there. He says, we're not just citizens, we're family. We're no longer foreigners, but now we have a family. It's so much more intimate than just being citizens. He's called us into um, his household. He cares for us. We were far, but now we're near. He's brought us right in as close as we can get. Paul then goes on to talk about the vision of his new temple, the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which we now know being the New Testament, and with Jesus as the cornerstone, the most important block in the building, part of the foundations, but also part of the walls that um, the other bricks are aligned to and kept in order because of. But we're not just welcomed into this new building, this new temple. Through Jesus, in his death and resurrection, we too are the building. We have been privileged to become dwelling places of God through the Holy Spirit. The old temples were God's home on earth, and now we are his home. We've been privileged more than probably most of the Israelites 2,000 years ago could ever have imagined. But with that does come some responsibility within the church. Um, I was listening to my dad preach a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned an interview with the theologian N.T. Wright, and in this interview, uh, Wright is asked if Paul was to write his letters to the church uh, in England today, or the world, what do you think Paul's main themes would be? And Paul said there'd be, Wright said that he reckons there'd be two things that Paul would pick up on. One was about the lack of holiness in the church. And secondly, was that Paul would be shocked at the disunity there is around us within the church. 
Part of that is the disunity between denominations. Paul probably wouldn't be able to get his head around the fact that from my house to here, um, over in Cholton, you can go past a Catholic church, you can go past a Baptist church and end up here um, in a Church of England. The idea of all of these different denominations would have shocked him. But also, if we're honest and we look around at one another, he probably would be shocked with the way that we sometimes end up interacting with each other. We do have disagreements with one another from time to time. We're all human, and part of the beauty of this new mankind that Paul has called us into is that within this room, within people that you speak to at church, you will find yourself in conversation and with friends, with people you probably would have never crossed paths with otherwise. Um, You will have friends that you uh, have at school and then people at school that you avoid and then you find out that they might be Christians and suddenly you've got a new interest together and you become friends. Or there'll be people in the church that if you were at work together, you probably would never cross lives or in social settings. And yet here we've all been called together and feel privileged to worship Christ. So how do we experience the fruits of this new united humanity when we're in our own confusion as a church? Well, ultimately, and when I say church, I don't, I'm not calling out St. John's specifically. I'm talking partly about us in our own personal lives, but also us as a, as a church, as a, as a Christian nation, as cross-denominational um, integration and peace. Ultimately, it's nothing that we can do, is it? We can't do anything on our own. Paul was quite clear in verses 14 to 18 that it's all what Christ has done for us. When I think about uh, Matthew 27 and uh, Jesus' death, and then it says at that moment the veil uh, was torn into the, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple um, was no more. I often viewed it as Jesus opening a door that we could walk from the outer court of the Gentiles all the way up into God's dwelling space. But in reality, when that happened, it was more that the fence, the walls were moved to surround us and include us so we didn't have to move at all. In verses 14 to 18, Paul mentions peace four times. And in verse 14 he says, talking about Jesus, for he himself is our peace. If we want to, as a church, offer refuge from an ununited kingdom, from the disillusionment that many people in society around us feel, then we need to look at one another and offer, offer something that is united and different. So when people look at the church, they don't just see a reflection of an ununited kingdom, but they see God's united kingdom, his true united kingdom. We need a refreshing of God's peace that brought together two opposing worldviews, two societies 2,000 years ago here in the world, in the 21st century. 
And I believe that here lies a challenge for us. Um, well, first of all, we have the challenge, I believe, of making sure that we don't gatekeep the Bible and God from friends and family members who perhaps we aren't confident enough to talk about um, the Bible to. But there's also a challenge that when we find ourselves in disagreements with people of other denominations or other people within the church, that it's not about proving our point to be right with the certain Bible verses that can without doubt prove that my view is right and your view is wrong, but actually reminding ourselves that unity is not going to be found through ourselves. We need to be seeking and praying for the peace and putting Jesus Christ first and allowing him to solve our issues and disagreements within our own churches and society so we can offer a safe space outside of the air of despair that we see around us.